Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about Ryan Coogler's Black Panther Wakanda Forever. First off, a little apology from my end because Thomas and I were talking about Wakanda Forever and after about 45 minutes I realized I was actually recording the audio through my camera instead of through my microphone, which sounds a lot better. So I'm sorry for the slight mess up there and I hope you can forgive me for sounding a little worse for the first three quarters or so of this episode. Okay, so now back to Wakanda Forever. Thomas, you hadn't seen the first Black Panther before, right? You watched both of them over the last weekend? That's right, yes. What did you think about them? I think they are very interesting within, especially within the Marvel MCU canon. They do Mm -hmm. something that is different. Ryan Coogler, I think, manages to craft these films in a way where his direction comes through maybe a little bit more than what we see from some of the other Marvel MCU directors, not just in terms of his visual style, but in terms of kind of how he's telling these stories. It feels a little bit more disconnected and unique. They work pretty well as stand-apart films to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. I think. And they're exploring some interesting, complicated issues in what I think is a really compelling and interesting way. I want to say up front, there's a video by FD Signifier, another Nebula, a fellow Nebula content creator. And he Mm -hmm. just released, leading into the new Black Panther film, he just released a video that really goes in depth and talks about how the original Black Panther comments on the Black experience and talks about all these different issues and really just breaks all of that down. And that was very helpful to me for understanding kind of the context of that story and some of what Ryan Coogler Mm -hmm. is addressing and talking about. Because that's a big part of what makes these movies unique is they're addressing certain issues and experiences Mm -hmm. that not just MCU films, but like a lot of other movies in the mainstream aren't touching on at all in kind of a nuanced and complicated way that makes them interesting. But also, if you're not familiar at all with any of that, some of that stuff can just kind of go over your head. So anyway, I want to recommend at the top that video. That video is great and will probably inform some of my perspective on this and and some of what we talk about. But yeah, I enjoyed both. I think, you know, they're both very interesting films trapped within the MCU and so therefore inevitably sort of have to be Marvel movies. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of part of why they're interesting and also part of their downfall. You can feel these moments where the interesting bits of what they are kind of get sidelined and then they go and fight and... It turns into kind of mushy CGI or whatever. But that's kind of my vague first impressions. We'll get more in depth into the story and especially the second one. But what was your feeling on the original Mm -hmm. one and then this one? I liked the original one. I thought it was fine. It's kind of in the category of Chang-Chi for me. Like it was fun, but slightly not forgettable. But I think, as you said, they they all end up being limited by being Marvel movies to some extent for me. So that's also what makes me feel somewhat conflicted about them trying to touch on these deeper themes, because I watched that video too that you mentioned, because I'm half a continent or like a full continent away from the United States. And 
the black experience as he talks about it over there. So a lot of that stuff and a lot of the American culture in general goes over my head kind of when it's referenced in movies. But it's kind of like there's an inherent tension there. As a critic, like I want to approach movies for what they are. Like I'm not going into a superhero movie with the same kind of expectations as a Andrei Tarkovsky film. Like I'm not expecting some deep exploration of faith or existentialism in just a popcorn movie. Like I'm fine with separating the two. Like I enjoy Michael Bay as much as I enjoy Terrence Malick. Like I, depending on what mood I'm in, of course. But so whenever a movie, especially Marvel, tries to do like a little bit of both, sometimes it can just feel conflicting. And that's whether it's trying to comment on race or power oppression or power dynamics and oppression or you know the way that civil war or the the one before that the winter soldier tried to be more politically complicated it always feels like it's touching on stuff but then it's not allowed to really go into it i think black panther the first one did it quite well i feel like it knew what it was going to touch on and then didn't have to go as deep as it seems to want to do in the second one. There's some complications in the second one that kind of build on the first one, but it wants to progress in terms of thematic development. But then it's also kind of running into walls that some of the other Marvel stories recently have had, where especially in the stories where you have a villain who's actually kind of this revolutionary, who's kind of like trying to upend the status quo, (laughs) but then Marvel realized, oh shit, we are the status quo. So it is... So you get that thing where the villain suddenly has to murder some innocents or do something like unhinged to kind of set the movie back on the right track. And that for me is where it kind of always falls apart a little bit for me. And for Wakanda Forever, the the second like major complication for me is uh, the passing of Chadwick Boseman, the yeah, the the action, the titular Black Panther, so to say, and how they handled that. And I'm sure we'll talk about it because it's a major aspect of the movie. And I'm not completely sure how I feel about that. I think that might be one of the most interesting things to maybe start the discussion with because it's so central to this movie. And for me, it did something very interesting with that that I really liked. But then it also... Mm-hmm. is one of the limiting factors of this movie and kind of creates this sense of tension throughout the movie that I think it has a hard time quite overcoming. So what I mean by that, and I guess in this area we'll start mm-hmm. getting into soft spoilers for Wakanda Forever so and the original Black Panther film by extension. But what I mean by that is mm-hmm. this movie, Wakanda Forever, really does spend time invested in the character's response to his death and actually sort of exploring their grief. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't just kind of step past it and ignore it and go on and, okay, we're going to do something else. The whole movie really ends up kind of being about grappling with that. And that was part of what I loved the most about it were these like softer moments, especially with Shuri and with Ramonda, the queen, where it they are just dealing with the death of their son and and brother and trying to come to terms with that and grappling with it mm-hmm. and dealing with this grief. Those are some of the best elements of the film. But then there's also a vacancy throughout the movie and there's a missing piece that in some way aids in that feeling and that ex- yeah. exploration of that theme. And so it's doing a great job of 
exploring this and getting inside that emotion. But then it's a MCU sequel movie. So it has to be like a big story. It has to be another installment. Mm. It has to set up new plot points. Yeah. It can't just be a little A24 indie movie about grief where some characters sit around a fire and talk about their feelings. <laughs> it has to move beyond that. Yeah. And I think that the tension between those two points in this movie is one of the parts that makes it feel maybe a little bit unbalanced, where it's kind of two movies competing to exist at once. Mm -hmm. And one is that softer, slower movie about grief and about grappling with loss. And then there's another bigger action movie stuffed with inside of yeah. that one. And I had a hard time kind of getting tonally in position for either of those entirely. Mm -hmm. I think that's literally what happened, right? They had a screenplay pretty much written or at least blotted out before Bozeman's passing and then they had to rewrite it because they didn't want to recast him. And so you have these two different stories that are kind of melded into one, right? which obviously leads to some issues. But I think for me, my initial conflict was more about that it's as a tribute to Chadwick Boseman, the person who was a great actor, by all accounts a great person, so he genuinely tragic loss, not just for the people who knew him, but also, you know, he definitely made an impact for his fans. And so as a tribute right. to that, I thought it was very touching, very sensitive, and some of the best parts of the movie for me were those elements. But as a Black Panther story, it's kind of narratively uninteresting as well. It's just the way, you know, he dies off screen in the introduction of the movie. And it's just, yeah, for a Black Panther movie, as you said, it does yeah. leave a gaping hole at the center of it all. And there was a point where I felt like it was actually quite poignant in depicting that sense of loss. Because when you have a story about someone who dies or passes away from some kind of illness or whatever, it's usually focused on that person and their confrontation with mortality. But I kind of like almost that this story begins right after someone passes and then really shows the hole that someone punches in a community and in their family. And you really see what's left behind when a great person passes away. And that's me coming back to that first part, I think, where I feel that more on the A. Right. It's more effective for me because of the meta aspect of it, knowing that the actor passed away and not so much like, oh, this isn't genuinely interesting Black Panther movie that would have been as interesting even right. if Chet was still yeah. alive at this point and just stepped out for some other reason. It's kind of like if Iron Man 2 started with Tony Stark dying off screen before the movie or Captain America, same story. It's, they would have never taken this direction if they yeah, yeah. hadn't been forced to almost. So in that sense, that to me is where that conflict kind of begins. I'm also not sure about the way we kind of publicly process <laughs> yeah, grief sure. through this multi-million dollar commercial project. I'm not sure if I have like a strong opinion on that, because I can imagine for some people who were a huge fan of Chadwick Boseman, especially for the people who actually knew him in real life, it can be quite effective to see a tribute like this. But, you know, there's also that part of me that's like, maybe it would have been better to separate the two. In the same way that I feel like weird about bringing right. dead people back into movies like with the, the CGI stuff, even though they don't do it here, but they still like use his presence and our meta knowledge of his passing to yeah. kind of pull at the heartstrings for this story. 
I don't know. It's hard to separate the two because in a lot of ways, Chadwick Boseman's impact on people, at least within you know, certain mm-hmm. demographics would have been through these movies. And so to what extent can you separate what people are right. mourning? Yeah. Obviously his family, the people who knew him in real life, the people who are working on this film are mourning the actual person. And the people who loved his work are also to some degree mourning the person, but they knew him through a character and they're mm-hmm. in a sense mourning that character and that presence. It's, yeah, it's all tangled up and that's it's impossible to really know what the right thing to do in those situations is. I think it's just a, a kind of a strange aspect of yeah. our modern world where you have these people that mm-hmm. are also part of their character. And how do you handle that? I mean, for me, the fact that they deal with it the way they do in this movie with him dying off screen and stuff like that feels much more respectful than bringing him back in some kind of CGI form and then showing that or... So I just recast him. Right. That's, that's an yeah. option that I, for some reason, didn't even think of because I kind of went with the movie already and takes the assumption or seems right. to make a strong assumption that if the actor passes away, then they are irreplaceable, even though I think Bozeman himself said at some point that he'd yeah. love to see like other actors take on the role, which it's not unheard of. Like There's plenty of instances where something like this has happened and it's been done before and even without actors passing away, it's pretty normal, like, you know, James Bond, or even yeah. within Marvel, that some actors are replaced or recast, or, you know, the torch is passed on. But but I can also imagine that's just the simple reality of Ryan Coogler, the director, and the co-stars having lost a friend and co-worker, and that they would be too weird for them to produce the movie with someone else. And kind of, for all, like, outward yes. appearance, yeah. pretend that it's still the same story, even though for them, like, the heart of it is gone even if some other actor could play black panther very well it would still you know it wouldn't be the same same. and especially given the amount of time they had i think chadwick boseman passed away months before the production for this started so they were kind of scrambling to rewrite this as they were creating it and i think given that context Mm -hmm. especially when you look at the track record of movies that have something catastrophic like that happen to them a director swaps out or has to drop out or other Mm -hmm. movies that have had to reshoot a bunch of scenes it can also often turn into a huge mess and this movie is messy in certain ways, but a lot of that, I don't know, I feel like this situation was handled about as well as you probably could have expected it to, given the amount of time and stuff that they had to kind of work with the yeah. scenario. To me, I don't know, I'm, I, I wasn't yeah. really bothered by it too much. I think in theory there's kind of the tension you mentioned, but I think the way in which they handled the grief and loss is so well done here that it didn't really bother me and it felt appropriate and poignant. But I think that leads to maybe another aspect of this film that makes it maybe a little bit less interesting than the original, which is it kind of has a reset in a sense. And it's dealing with this theme of grief and loss that the original Mm -hmm. isn't dealing with in the same way. Although for the character of Killmonger, that is an aspect of the original Black Panther, and they do kind of connect that and relate that to this story in a way that I think ends up being very interesting. So that's kind of new and fresh here, and those, to me, were the best parts of the story. But then the rest of the arc and kind of Shuri's character arc ends up kind of being a thematic rehash of a lot of what was going on in the original, and it doesn't really add anything new to the tension or central conflict there. It just kind of takes 
the conflict between the two ideologies of T'Challa and Killmonger from the first and puts that inside Shuri herself. And she's kind of having to battle that out and brings in the character of Namor Mm -hmm. and kind of rehashes a lot of the same thematic tension between those characters. That's not bad. I think that's interesting ground to cover. It was interesting in the first. It's still kind of interesting here. There's a lot you can say about those themes. They're deep and rich and interesting. But I didn't feel like Mm -hmm. this movie really pushed the kind of conversation that the first one was having. A lot of what F.D. Signifier talks about in his movie, the tension between different approaches to dealing with the Black experience from Africa, Mm -hmm. from Black Americans. Here, it's kind of extended, and then the Maya culture is integrated into that, so it kind of expands things outward a little bit and touches on how oppressed or marginalized, colonialized Indigenous peoples around the world are pitted against each other in the same way that in the first one, different Black people are pitted against each other. So it's shifting it slightly into new territory, but it didn't feel like it had anything new to Mm -hmm. say to me in that discussion. Yeah, it made me wonder a lot about what the original movie would have looked like if it still had a T'Challa in it. Because that for me, like going back a little bit to just the premise of the movie, is that it kind of feels like you now have a movie made up of secondary characters instead of one that truly has like a main character. And it's not to say that the roles that we had or the secondary characters were bad and I think the movie is actually almost saved by having these characters being played by excellent actors and actresses, which really like filled the hole that Boswick left to some extent. But they were initially written as secondary characters or set up as such in the first movie. And they still, yeah. so that, that feeling still lingers in the second one. It feels like they had a character arc for T'Challa in mind and one for Shuri. And then because T'Challa was no longer with us, that his character arc became sort of blended together with Shuri's, and she now has these multiple different phases or journeys that she goes on. There's the bit where she has some tension with her mother about the value of technology versus tradition and how she values one more over the other. Then there's her coming to terms with her grief over T'Challa over losing T'Challa and not being able to help him, which resolves at the end with her burning her own funeral clothing. And then there's the revenge struggle that's kind of introduced at the last second. Like, I think that's at the sort of like darkest moment of the script, like where everything goes wrong, like right before the third act that, spoiler alert, that her mom is killed by Namor. And that's what instills this new character arc of her Am I going to do the revenge or am I going to take the high road? It feels like there's multiple things that are set up at the end. One of which the whole technology versus tradition thing to me doesn't get resolved in any meaningful way. The whole discussion doesn't seem to contribute that much thematically. You know, there's the the mother argued for the ways of the past, the kind of naturalistic way of going about the things where because the Black Panther, the sort of herb or flower that turns people into Black Panthers is gone now, so we should let it rest. And Shuri is like, well, to hell with that, I can make my own. So like, where's the line between to what extent can we take control over the nature or kind of envision our own path to what we want to do with 
technology or what we can achieve, but both sides seem to win at the end. She does get like all the new Iron Man suits and she also gets to be the Black Panther again. So I'm not sure if that goes anywhere or does anything really. Right. She does the ceremony at the end that they were starting in the beginning that her mother was trying to get her to do. So there's Mm -hmm. an element there of her kind of practicing out that piece of ritual and maybe finding an appreciation for it. But that's not super developed. That discussion doesn't really end in the same way. You know, they have, I think there's also a philosophical Mm -hmm. side to that theme where they're doing that ritual in the beginning and then they get interrupted by Fishman coming out of the water (laughs) as, what's his name, to (laughs) M'Baku calls him. But uh, they're starting that ritual where they burn the garments of mourning and Shuri is kind of like, your vision of T'Challa as a presence continuing on, this is just a mental construct. And her mother asks her, what is your construct of him? What does that do for you? What is the value of that? Does it comfort you? Which I think is interesting because instead of sort of challenging the factual nature of Shuri's belief and addressing it Mm -hmm. in that way, she addresses it in a sort of utilitarian kind of what is the benefit of this? And this is like a taps into a really common current discussion surrounding tradition and ritual and religion, which is this idea of if people are saying, hey, factually, there's no basis for why people are doing this, that belief that, you know, you burn this mm-hmm. thing and then there's going to be spirits or whatever, that's all bunk. And then there's other people who are saying it doesn't really matter. Like there's some value in and of itself. And that discussion kind of falls away. It doesn't really continue. Like you said, it's set up at the beginning there. And then we never really revisit it, except for the fact that we Mm -hmm. see her burning the garments of mourning at the end. So we don't know what her belief about it is, but we see that she is finding some value in at least practicing that ritual But there's tension, too, in the scene. I really love the scene where she makes the flower and then she goes to the ancestral plane and she doesn't see her ancestors. She sees Killmonger and she feels betrayed by her ancestors in that sense. Mm -hmm. I think that scene is really interesting and it kind of not sidesteps that discussion, but it makes her character arc a little interesting because there's not, she never encounters evidence that changes her belief about whether or not those things are just a mental construct. She doesn't get to stand there and see her mother in that moment. Mm. But she did see Killmonger who's also dead. To me, it just felt such a a strange place to discuss this because, you know, at this point in the Marvel Universe, (laughs) there's other dimensions, there's magic. And the child also already went to the ancestral plane so i mean surely he's told shuri that the thing was real and because she literally disputes the existence of the ancestral plane which i don't know it felt a little bit silly it's like i don't want to say cheap but maybe a slightly immature exploration of the afterlife and what it means to us or how it functions culturally but but yeah i like what you said about kind of the way it questions the utility of certain beliefs regardless of whether they are not, right. whether or not they are yeah. grounded within any factual reality. Yeah, I think it's an interesting theme to try to explore, for sure. And I think it's a mm-hmm. relevant modern one of if we feel in our modern lives this vacancy, this void of things that would have been filled in the past with tradition or rituals or religious belief or whatever, do we try to reconnect with that? Or can we concoct our own in a lab somewhere or something? 
But yeah, I think also that whole discussion is a little bit mm-hmm. thematically hamstrung by the fact that ultimately, like we said at the beginning, this is an MCU movie. And within that broader yeah. context, not just within the context of this movie's relationship to the MCU as a whole, but this movie's relationship to the other Black Panther movie, as you said, kind of muddies those waters a little bit. So yeah, it definitely feels like it's like mm-hmm. dipping its toes into some of those themes. But at least for me... yeah. I didn't see any kind of deeper exploration beyond just kind of touching on them and laying them out there. Yeah. And I think it's also just because, as we said, that within the movie itself, it's just one of the things that's going on. Because at this point, we barely have even talked about Namur and his whole presence, basically, and his character, his motivations, his impact on this story. And do you have any general thoughts on his presence and what he brings to this movie and perhaps to to Marvel as a whole. I like the character and the actor and the performance a lot. I think the kind of conflicted character that he is is very interesting in the same way Killmonger was kind of interesting where he's this bad dude, he's sort of revolutionary, but you can also kind of empathize at least to some extent where he's coming from because of the way they set up the character and he's been alive for thousands of years. He's seen all these atrocities happen. And so wanting to rise up against that and kind of defend your people from that and avenge that is this relatable position, Mm -hmm. which I think always makes for a more interesting antagonist or villain than if you just have somebody who's trying to be the pure evil or something like that. That's where kind of, I think this story ends up being, sort of a replay of some of the themes that we saw in the first. I'm not sure where he really is that distinct from Killmonger. And yeah. I mean, he's definitely different and interesting. How did you feel about him? I was hoping for it to be quite interesting because I really liked the premise of him because he's actually, he's not really a revolutionary, but rather he is someone who rebelled and then turned reclusive, like they've built this right. underwater city and they kind of want to live there and be left alone. And that's what they've been doing for the last hundreds of years or thousands, perhaps. But I kind of like the way T'Challa or Wakanda doing the right thing at the end of the first movie. They kind of, they revealed their own presence. They opened up their resources to the world and they offered to extend a helping hand that as a sort of consequence of that, as almost as collateral damage, that's what made the whole right. world kind of figure out the vibranium, thing about yeah. the vibranium, the special metal that they have, and that made other countries curious and even fearful because it's kind of this almost nuclear weapon type of deal. Like if every country had it, they could significantly shift their own power position. So it makes sense that because of Wakanda's opening up, there's other countries that now react and go do their own thing, an effort in which they stumbled upon this underwater city. I thought it was Atlantis, but then later I realized, oh no, that's Atlantis is the, that's the other universe. (laughs) But anyway, so I like the idea that the two of them are linked, that his community is threatened because Wakanda tried to assert their own in some way, which I'm not sure how that dynamic would relate to any real world situation or if that's something that's taken place or I can imagine it has but I like the idea that you know you have these two I wouldn't say Wakanda was marginalized because they had so much wealth but they kind of revealed themselves in some way they asserted themselves and that caused a reaction for another group that's also wanted to be left alone and are now attracting unwanted attention and potential invasion and 
colonization, perhaps even from yeah, yeah. an outside source. Yeah. In this case, the pretty much the global West. So yeah, that I think was a really interesting setup for a story to unfold. And I like that he doesn't go, I'm going to kill everyone just in case right away, but that he right. actually tries to seek an allegiance with Wakanda at first. And which at this point he's acting like very reasonable because we get that early scene where the French, I think, are trying to raid some kind of Wakanda facility on some Wakanda outpost outside of Wakanda. And it's kind of juxtaposed in this interesting way with the minister of France right. like, yeah. talking about how they would never do such a thing. And then they bring in the soldiers like, like sit down, you hypocrite. And that's like real stakes. That's like real yeah. setup for a threat that's looming over their heads. And that makes it reasonable for Namor to also be worried and take action in response. And so I really liked the dynamic right up until Shuri was taken down to the underwater city. And that's where you, they kind of have this heart to heart. They talk yeah. about their own communities and how they set something up for themselves. That's where the movie could have gone in a really interesting direction for me if Shuri had accepted his offer in some way, or at least like that Namur would have reacted more reserved, maybe. I'm not sure if that's the best word here, but I kind of lost interest at the moment he said like, okay, you don't want to join me, then I'm going to yeah, kill yeah. everyone. Or even like if, you know, the he couldn't go past the point of wanting right. to kill the scientist who had discovered yeah, or who yeah. had built that vibranium detector machine. So at that point I realized like, okay, I can now predict the rest of the movie that I'm going to have a falling out. He's going to be the enemy and he's going to be killed off as just another Marvel villain that has all the right reasons for acting, but does so in the unsympathetic right. way to make sure our allegiance stays on the other side. It's also what happened in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It's what happened in the first Black Panther to some extent. That's yeah. just a character arc that I'm growing tired of a little bit, especially when then Shuri's mother was killed and that was the whole vengeance plot instilled, you know, in a movie like this, you know it's going to end for 100% with her standing over him with a spear <laughs> right, and then yeah. just like poking it right next to him and then not yeah. going through with the vengeance because that's not what the heroes do, unless it's Deadpool, right. but that's made support. <laughs> so that's also, yeah. even there, it's not surprising when he does actually go through with the vengeance. Yeah. So yeah, that's, I think, my general thoughts on what I liked about his character and his story and where I felt it did away with what could have been the more fascinating conflict. Like, I would have loved to see a situation where either Wakanda and the underwater city kind of form an allegiance, not even like with the goal of going to war with the rest of the world, but at least forming like an allegiance right. and then see how the rest of the world reacts to that and see how that escalates. Instead of doing yeah. the, okay, we have to kill everyone. If you're not with me, you're against me. And now yeah. we're going to have this very predictable and traditional plot. Yeah, that to me, a lot of the larger points along those plots kind of, I think, were fine for me. But mm -hmm. the navigation of the motivation or how everybody turned from here to there or why people were doing things at each place. Shuri, I think mm -hmm. it was mostly okay the way they navigated that. But especially for Namor, it really feels like I didn't ever really understand his motivation. I mean, I understood his motivation on a broad scale of like, oh, he wants vengeance because his people were destroyed. Mm -hmm. And 
he feels threatened. I understood those broader strokes, but in the scene to scene kind of, I want to try to team up with you. Oh no, I have to, now I have to kill you. I didn't understand why those shifts were happening. It didn't feel fully motivated. And then also you have the scientist Mm -hmm. character in there who the whole time feels, yeah, she was very kind of under formed as a character. That's literally the case is what I learned afterwards is she's in there because it's a setup for Ironheart, the TV series. I think this is even maybe the second time that they've done that now, and maybe even more than that, an MCU film where this side minor character comes in. And both times I was like, they feel like they shouldn't be here or or at least they're not written in a way that makes complete sense or they just feel forced. I can't think of the other example, but there's at least one other where I felt that way. And then I found out literally yeah. it... You know, it probably did come down as an actual Mm -hmm. mandate from a producer at Disney being like, hey, you need to add this character to your screenplay because we're doing this show and we need a way to introduce them within the MCU or whatever. Mm -hmm. She has her own like comic book series or? All I know is that there's a show coming out called Ironheart where she's the main character. (laughs) But yeah, those are the things where you're just like, why is this the way it is? And then you realize, oh, it's probably because it was forced to be that way by sort of the Disney yeah. machine. Yeah, because her presence, yeah. and especially Namor's fixation on her, is what felt kind of diminished his character arc for me. Because he initially right. he wants to kill the scientist and then he figured, then we're all right. And I thought like, okay, that's just doesn't seem like reasonable. Like killing that one scientist isn't going to yeah. prevent the genies out of the box, so to say, you know what's killing that one scientist going to do. And then even when Shuri says, like, okay, we bring her to Wakanda, we just keep her there, keep her safe, away from the influence of the other countries in the world. Even that wasn't good enough for some reason. He still was so fixated on having her killed, which I think only served to make sure, like, okay, you know, you're the bad guy, stay in your lane, don't be, like, too good of a revolutionary, otherwise we're going to have to (laughs) do an actual revolutionary life. (laughs) Which is what we don't want yeah, to do. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like for a guy who's been alive for at least a thousand years or something, he should be a little bit more pragmatic or like not quite so caught up in like a, mm-hmm. a what seems like a tiny <laughs> detail. You know, I guess the idea is that the reveal and the possibility of the vibranium getting out, he sees as just this like kind of unforgivable betrayal of what they're using to protect themselves. But it's just very underbaked and didn't quite land for me and then ends up being a little bit predictable. Do you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now? After the show, head to curiositystream.com slash cinema of meaning, and for less than $15, you'll get a year of access to thousands of documentaries, and you'll get our podcast ad-free with Nebula. That's curiositystream.com slash cinema of meaning. I think that's also where the whole setup with the CIA doesn't come together. Yeah. We have the, what's that character's name again? The uh, Ross, the something Ross. Oh, yeah. The Hobbit, yes. <laughs> yeah. I walked out of this movie and I was thinking to myself, like, what did he do during this whole thing? He doesn't do anything, right? He observes, he's in contact with. Yeah, he kind of tips Wakanda off to the fact that the U.S. is going to attack Wakanda, which I'm struggling to remember 
what that Mm -hmm. even has to do with anything, really. I mean, I'm sure it connected in some way, but I can't remember, which just goes to tell you kind of how ancillary, it felt like that character got included because they had to, to they needed to be a (laughs) plot point so that the scientists could be included. It just all felt very mechanical. I didn't really understand why a lot of that was there. (laughs) Yeah, I I get that they're setting up some kind of escalation after the France incident. Yeah. I'm not sure what to call it, or at least there needs to be some, maybe a witness or the perspective on the other side that communicates to us that there is indeed reason for worry or responsiveness on the Wakanda side, that them opening themselves up to the world isn't just going to be received with like hugs and kisses and stuff. There's going to be political consequences that resonate throughout the established nations, the established status quo, the power dynamics, and there's naturally going to be a response to that, which Wakanda may have been too naive about, at least from Ross's perspective. Like he's kind of portrayed as the CIA, but the good one. And then he kind of underestimates also that the bad part of the CIA is up to more sinister stuff than he initially assumes. But yeah, that doesn't really resolve into anything. I'm not sure if that's set up for a future story, which I would have liked to see that story in this movie rather than see it being set up for a future installment, which would kind of render this movie pointless to some extent. Or as like the stepping stone that's just the, here's what you need to know before we get to the real stuff later on. Yeah, Because the whole climax of the movie revolves around Namor and his conflict with Wakanda and the United States and the rest of the world is kind of excluded from it at that point. Yeah, It feels like Marvel has kind of fallen into this weird storytelling trend. It feels like they're needlessly setting up future stuff because if they want to do a conflict like that yeah. in a future story, you know, you could have cut out all of those scenes with Ross. It's probably like 10 minutes or not even that. And then just have them set that up fresh in the movie that's actually going to be about that instead of planting all those seeds here and there to see what could pay off in the future. But I wasn't too excited about that. Yeah, it was just kind of forgettable and it didn't add much. And I don't know, my wife and I walked out of the theater and she was just like, I don't know, I might have left the colonizer in the chains because what's her name says that Okoye. 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 Yeah. She says that line when she rescues him. My wife goes, I I think I might have left him in chains. And then I was like, you don't know what she did with him after she got him out of there because they don't even show they don't even show what they do with him. It's yeah. like that inconsequential of kind of an arc. It just felt very rote and kind of in there. And then you add those things onto the fact that this is like a two hour and forty minute movie that really feels yeah. like two hours and forty minutes long. Which I know that's like the normal length for a Marvel movie now, I guess. But it's too much. It really felt like it could have been pared back into something a little smaller. And it felt like it could have been pared back into the movie. It kind of felt like it wanted to be at the beginning and the end. That Mm -hmm. worked the best for me. And you could have still kind of slipped some of the conflict in there. You could have had Namor. You could have had some of this. But if you cut the U.S. out of it entirely, it almost would have been cleaner and more compact and maybe easier to navigate Mm -hmm. those motivations. Or like you're suggesting, make the big movie and have things actually come to a head, added an additional layer of conflict that might have given it the weight that it feels like it kind of, yeah. was missing. But maybe some of that is like, that feels like that could have been the arc for T'Challa 
where, okay, let's go to this next step. He's decided to open himself up to the world, and now he realizes that's going to bring with it conflict and cost and things like that. That's kind of an arc you can easily conceive of there. So maybe that's some of where it was going, but there's a little bit of a reset here. And it kind of has to start over. It it could have been a real Dark Knight-esque story in that sense, where you have Batman Begins that sets up the Batman, and at the end of the movie it suggested that, oh, you know, it's not going to be as easy as you think. And then in The Dark Knight, indeed, we really deal with the consequences of the Batman being now a thing. And I think that maybe Kugler had something similar in mind based on the little bits and pieces that we have here, where you have T'Challa or Wakanda stepping onto the global stage and then having to deal with what that really means and what the real implications are of that. And it's a shame almost that they didn't get to explore it in the way that they did, or because the way it is now, it just feels kind of, yeah. Yeah. Because now it also is the movie about grief and community and what that means. The one thing I did like about Shuri's revenge plot or character arc is that at the end, it does come back to her having seen the underwater community and kind of relating it to Wakanda itself. Right. Stick cliched resolution to any revenge story where there's that recognition of like you have humanity and I have humanity you know yes it's sort of the positive version of we are the same you and I right which Killmonger I think also does in that ancestral plane sequence as every villain does at some point where they try to point out to the main character that they're actually the same even though the main character refuses to acknowledge it. Yeah, But yeah, I wonder if that may have been originally T'Challa's revelation, because I can imagine that in the original story, his mother would also have passed away and that maybe he was the one who really came to struggle with then wanting, wanting to, or, or yeah. feeling the need, the necessity to destroy Namor and his people in order to preserve his own. Yeah. Because he also already went through a revenge arc. So I, I don't think an exact repetition would have been as yeah. interesting. And I think that's maybe where the whole idea came from that he does come to realize, or now in this case, Shuri comes to realize they're both the same in the sense that they have communities, loving communities, or by all accounts, you know, prosperous or communities filled with people or beings that want to preserve themselves, that want to stay alive, that want to stick together and, yeah. you know, kind of have the, the humanity that follows from that, have that be the motivation to form a bond instead of break them and resort to violence. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I wish it would have been able to come together more effectively. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a cliche turn there. It is effective, I think, at least for me. That cliche is kind of a cliche for a reason. There's that one shot in particular. There's a little, I forget exactly which moment it is, but there's a little use of montage during some of these sequences There's like a shot of one of the Maya people like reaching out a hand. And I think it suggested this is kind of what Shuri is seeing or envisioning. And those moments are really well crafted. The cinematography is great. I think the editing is that. I noticed in the credits, Kelly Dixon, uh, who is an editor from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, worked on this with some other editors. And I think this is one of Hmm. the better edited Marvel films I've seen in a while. And it used some of that. And so some of those moments hit for me in a way that I think they haven't necessarily in some other films, even though it's not exactly new here, just because I think they were pulled off relatively well formally in terms of the way they were executed. But 
yeah, ultimately then kind of walking away from it, looking back on it, there's not as much there that it leaves you with to kind of think about or mull over afterwards. So yeah, that's where I think it's a messy film. There's parts of it that for me feel like the next evolution. I wish I could have seen what the next version would have really been like. I love the way this looks. I think with the exception of some of the more generic action sequences, a lot of the visual effects looks better. But even seeing them back to back, I think like the action sequences here were a little bit better constructed than a lot of the ones in the original Black Panther. The world feels more grounded and realized. I think both of the Wakanda and the other world that I'm forgetting the name of look cool. The designs are very cool. The costumes are well done and all of that. And those softer, quieter moments with Shuri's arc feel good and genuine. Those performances are good. Mm-hmm. Nakia, played yep. by Lupita, Lupita Nyong'o, is phenomenal. That whole central cast mm-hmm. of Wakanda yeah. is great. Loved all of those. And yeah, loved- it's still, you know, yeah, as I said, like it felt like secondary characters still yes, a little yeah, bit, yeah. but it's the best possible option to if you're forced to have like only secondary characters, this was the right. best worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, also shout out to Mabaku's character who I really enjoyed in yeah. this movie. Yeah, he was fun. I don't remember him exactly from the first movie, but he was this more brash kind of he still is this kind of crass person who's all about punching people with his stick, but then he's kind of large and kind of a Jimbro aspect to him right. almost. But at the same time, in this movie, I don't remember him being that way in the first one, but he comes across as way more empathetic, especially in his connection to Shuri, where he really becomes this listening ear for her and kind of a rock for her to lean against. Or uh, you really became like a literally supportive character for her, which I thought was nice. Also really funny performance by him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had maybe all of the good comedic relief. Well, there was a mm-hmm. few funny lines when they were over yeah. in America dealing with the scientists. But yeah, he had most of the comedic relief in Wakanda yeah. itself. Because he does he does feel somewhat out of place as this Flintstone character almost right. between this yeah. high-end, technically advanced Wakanda who's way more elegant also in the way they do combat and stuff where he's, yeah. as I said, like he's pretty much bashing people with a stick or like, a, a, I don't even know what his weapon is, some kind of staff. But yeah, so I like that they added some actual character to him, especially like some softer elements, which you don't usually see in a character that plays that kind of more yeah. supposedly like raw masculine warrior type energy. Yeah. So that was nice. Yeah, I think overall I feel conflicted, but I enjoyed it. There's a lot that I love about it. There's a lot that kind of feels messy, but ultimately I understand why that mess is there. It's like, it's hard to pull together a film where your lead dies months before you go into production. And I think... What they did here certainly is about maybe the best you could expect under those circumstances. And I think, I don't know, there's elements of this that to me represent definitely the direction I would be more interested in seeing Marvel films move in terms of style and in terms of what they are allowed to kind of explore thematically and tonally and how they address those things. My concern a little bit is that that only ended up being the case in this movie 
by accident because basically they were forced to. And so Ryan Coogler kind of got to do a little bit more of just whatever he wanted because they were backed into a corner and the executives couldn't come in and get it back on track or something. Because the best parts of this movie, to me, are the ones that would have been added in because of sort of the change, the moments that deal with the grief. Yeah. So... It's like that almost opened the door up a little bit for some authenticity and originality to come through that I can only imagine was being created kind of at last minute. But maybe that last minute off the cuff sort of element of things allowed for a freedom that doesn't normally exist in the studio environment of production. Yeah, I definitely feel that the elements that dealt with Boswick's passing away and the sense of grief that's present because of it in the characters represented most of the emotional core of the movie for me to the point where I almost wonder if the movie had been made as planned if it would have been a more generic feeling sequel almost yeah or even if like T'Challa had been recast and they made the original script with a different actor, then maybe it would have been just a mediocre sequel with the added whiplash effect of people having to adjust to a new actor embodying that role. Yeah. It's obviously like there's no situation here that would have been the best way out. You know, the movie's going to suffer, was going to suffer either way. And to some extent, that's a good thing. It just goes to show that the kind of impact that Boswick really had on this character and this world, even in the way, you know, Wakanda as a whole was established and what his character meant to Marvel in general and perhaps even what he just brought to the screen and to life in general as a person. Yeah. In some way, it's a good sign that that should leave a hole when someone like that passes away that shouldn't go unnoticed and we were going to feel the effects of it either way. I guess that's what I'm just going to say. And I think the other thematic core that this movie is exploring, which is just this kind of extension of what is being explored in the first film of, hey, maybe instead of fighting against each other, these groups that have been destroyed, or in this case, it's two groups that have receded into isolationism because of colonialism Instead of fighting amongst ourselves, what if we worked together and saw ourselves as kind of in the same situation and found an alliance there against the real enemy? It's an easy sort of unoffensive conclusion to get behind there Mm -hmm. that doesn't have kind of the same complicated conflict that I think the first one has that is a little bit unresolved that FD signifier talks about there. So I I think we talked a little bit about the lack of other countries' involvement. The U.S. isn't really as much a part of this. There's a little bit with France and stuff. But because it's less Mm -hmm. engaged with that, I think it ends on like a a note that is a little bit more concise. And at least for me, through what I can understand and interpret through this film, is not maybe as messy as how the Mm -hmm. first one comes across. But that's also kind of a limiting factor, I think, to some extent. One thing I almost completely forgot about that he does, Namor does survive the movie, in fact. They do end up with some kind of allegiance between the two nations, Wakanda and the underwater city, which even Namor seems to get some pushback for in his own community because he has to explain to his second-in-command or something. I'm not sure exactly who that character was, but he has to kind of rationalize his motivations for siding with Wakanda in the end and... So it does feel like they're setting up some kind of 
future conflict, although I highly doubt that Marvel is truly going to make a sort of colonist reckoning movie right, that's really yes. going to deal with <laughs> a conflict between yeah. the global north and the south, so to say. Yeah. If they're going to do it, I'm all for it. I'd love to see where that goes, but... It would be um, it would be interesting for sure. The fact that they yeah. keep making these sort of anti-colonial characters as like bad guys definitely doesn't seem to suggest that they'll go that route. I mean, Wakanda itself is kind of anti-colonialist, but only sort of by name in these movies. They don't they're like we'll work with someone from the CIA. It's there's an interesting play there where nothing they do really in these movies anyway, setting aside the comics in these movies is they're not truly fighting against the mm -hmm. global north in any way. Yeah. That's such an interesting aspect of these movies to me, though, is from my perspective, mm -hmm. these kind of issues when they're brought up thematically in movies, the first one and this one are both about conflicts that exist within these communities instead of just being about the conflict between a certain race or community or country or nationality mm -hmm. against the colonial force or white people or whatever, so much of what I see in media about these kinds of issues is always white people pitted against another group. So it's right. fascinating to see movies that are actually exploring kind of deeper levels of that conflict that exist underneath that sort yeah. of external primary conflict that we usually see depicted. It's cool and interesting to see those kinds of things even if it's doing it in somewhat of a rough and messy way, the fact that mm -hmm. those kinds of things are being explored <laughs> in like yeah. huge budget blockbusters is definitely interesting. And I applaud someone like Ryan yeah. Coogler for even trying to do it because <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's definitely ambitious. Yeah, I was going to say like I have the same feelings about it. It really fascinates me that they go into this direction, but it also makes me even more aware of the potential of the kind of stories we could right. be getting. And then yeah. it only feels even more disappointing when it does end up being the okay 7 out of 10 Marvel movie at the end of it. Yeah. Because like I'm just thinking like that could be potential here for the way they set it up now. That could be like potential to have another Civil War movie because Captain America Civil War, that basically was a story about heroes or at least two groups of sympathetic characters being thrown against each other because of philosophical and political differences. Yeah. And I feel like they're slowly, or at least it seems like they're slowly setting up something similar here about global politics and kind of the post-colonialism, the kind of the conflicts that arose from that and yeah it could be an interesting perspective there where you have namur and maybe other places like it france and the us and the other former colonial powers and then wakanda being sort of struggling to navigate their own position within that you know that's the kind of storytelling i'd be interested in at this point but yeah yeah, uh, yeah again i'm not sure to what extent we're gonna be getting it but as you said i admire wakanda forever for at least dipping its toe a little bit into, <laughs> into, that, into those. those waters, <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see where they, uh, where they take it from here. Yeah. 
Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to check us out on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula, where you can experience our podcast ad-free, listen to all of our episodes a week early, and get access to monthly bonus episodes. This month, we're discussing the new All Quiet on the Western Front. Before that, we did Upstream Color, Alien Covenant, Drive, and many others. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for Curiosity Stream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more, visit curiositystream.com slash cinema of meaning, or just follow the link in the show notes. And we'll see you again next time.